Appreciate the uh, intro. I can't imagine the committee meeting when they're discussing possible speakers and uh, that opens up with, why don't we have the guy that misspelled masturbate yesterday on Twitter come talk to our group? It's you are, by the way. I didn't know that. So, no, in all seriousness, um, it was interesting. Got the call and said, why don't you come speak? Said it's a group. We have Haas Engineering. We have Weaver, the accountants. We have Holland and Knight, HK, if you're in the know, some lawyers, and IMA insurance folks. And so they say when you give a speech, you always need to start with a joke. So uh, I was talking with Sean. I lost a bet. Sean, what joke do you want to hear? Which one of the groups? The engineers. All right. So we'll start with an engineering joke. Back in the mid-1800s, so call it 1850, there was a railroad boom in England. And railroads were being built everywhere. It was one of the bubbles. And literally, this is a great stat, 90% of all the railroad tracks in England today were actually laid in the 1850s. There was a calculation done by one of the newspapers that said literally everyone on this island has to ride a train 22 hours a day for all of these projects just to get their money back. And uh, so it is uh, reported that one of the Rothschilds actually said, there are three paths to ruin in this world, wine, women, and engineers. The first two are more fun, but the last one's the most certain. So, <laughs> sorry, engineers. Uh, okay, so what I thought I would do today, and this is kind of what the kids do, so... Uh, they do this thing on social media, AMA, Ask Me Anything. Usually involves alcohol. I'm sober today, I promise. I'm only on coffee. Uh, but I figured I would do that because I get reached out to through Twitter, LinkedIn. People send questions, say this and that. So what I did is kind of a thought experiment is went to my assistant, said, why don't you do this? Go through my Twitter messages, my LinkedIn messages, Instagram, Facebook, Pick questions that people want to know, write them on note cards, and I'll just get up and read them and answer the questions. I, I, I may have seen some of these because, you know, I go through my messages from time to time, but I'm not really sure what's here. So I figured I'll just jump in. If you have a question, feel free to, free to ask it, but I'm just jumping in. So let's do this. All right, question number one. What's the most undervalued asset in oil? Um, the thing I can't figure out right now is the strip. Because if you think about it, the strip's never right. We in the oil business know that. You know, it's always wrong. I mean, we could make a fortune if you just bet opposite the strip. That would have been the best performing asset of the last decade if we would have done that. But anyway, so when I look at the strip today, what's oil today? 110, something like that. If you look out calendar 25, you can buy a barrel of oil for $70, $72, something like that. And so just huge, steep backwardation right now. And I don't understand that. And uh, so I actually spent a little time calling around asking traders that. And, you know, with traders, you always get the answer of, you know, oh, supply, demand, all that. The one answer I got that seemed to make a lot of sense to me was, generally speaking, the strip is the consensus. Doesn't mean it's gonna be right, but there are buyers and sellers on both sides. We have tons of sellers today. If you own oil and, oil and gas assets and you're producing oil and you see 110, you wanna hedge all day long. I mean, after what we went through two years ago, minus 37, so you obviously have a lot of selling hedging on it. Historically, what is the buying side of that? Well, it's always been transportation, right? I mean, it's the airlines. They were the biggest buyers. Sometimes refiners are, are buying, but it's generally tied back to transportation. I mean, think of who is still in the doldrums post-COVID. It's the airlines, right? I mean, they're at what, 85% of where they were pre, and they all have crappy balance sheets even though they got bailed out somewhat by the government. But you look at it, so there's not a buyer. 
right now for oil two, three, four, five years out. So I think that's why you have the steep backwardation of the curve right now. So I, I can't see a world in which four years from now, oil, you're not happy that you don't own oil at 70 or $72 a barrel. Um, and so to me, that looks undervalued. And to me, I think the challenge oil and gas folks in this room have is how do we deal with that phenomenon? Because we all use the curve, right, wrong, or indifferent. We buy, we sell off the curve, we budget off the curve. And so I think the challenge for you guys as you go through planning cycles, should we drill, should we make this acquisition, is you're going to have to make a call on oil four and five years out. I think if you sit there and say oil is going to be higher than 72 and you lean into that, you're going to be glad you did it. But that's kind of the, the answer I'd give right now. What's up, Juan? Just a quick follow-up to that then. Uh, what are your thoughts on gas? Like, you need gas if you think that we have to export a lot of gas. The idea that we have backwardation of gas would also be wrong. Yeah, no, so I've never understood gas, natural gas. I um, And one of the biggest lessons I learned in this business is when you look back kind of mid-2000s, natural gas was hitting, I think the high was $14 an M, something like that. It was July of 2007 because we sold Obinco. And I remember having a discussion with Marty Phillips of NCAP because we were co-invested in that. Uh, Marty and I were going to go back and renegotiate, uh, retrade the buyer on that and demand more money. And literally, we, we, we held our ground, just sold at the price we had agreed to, even though we thought we were royally getting screwed. And two years later, Marty and I were going, man, that's the smartest thing we ever did was getting rid of that piece of crap. But um, so short answer is I don't know. I totally missed, I missed two things. One, so, you know, Natural gas was at 14 and it basically plunged for a decade, right? But the strip was always in contango. So we ran a lot of economics with the, the strip in contango, even if we were using 75% of the strip. And you know what we figured out? And this is from the camp of, well, no, duh. But we figured out that we would pay for a location in three years because the price was higher and we'd drill it then, but we wouldn't drill it today. And we overpaid for a lot of natural gas back in the mid-2000s because of that. So I totally missed the collapse. And then I totally missed all the associated natural gas that came along with the oil and, in effect, rendered, uh, rendered gas worthless. So whatever I say about natural gas, do the opposite. Uh, I, do think, I do think LNG is the lifeline that gets us out of this. Um, it's interesting, last, last week the United States and uh, the European Union announced a deal whereby we're gonna send them more LNG. I think we're targeting, the details are sketchy like most government things, but it sounds like we're gonna send them 15 BCF by the end of, of 2022. And it, it just occurred to me reading that, why can't we just run a pipeline from the Marcellus, the Utica, into Massachusetts. I mean, they've got the Everett terminal there, the only importing LNG terminal in the United States. Did you know the three years pre-COVID, they imported 50 to 55 Bs a year of, uh, of natural gas when literally that pipeline would take us, what, four to six months to build, put the regulatory stuff aside. So, I mean, we could literally be exporting 50 Bs of, because we get all, all the Everett LNG intake comes from Trinidad, basically. Every once in a while, they take a Russian tanker and, you know, people, you know, rabble rouse about that, but it's really coming from Trinidad. We could literally be exporting 50 Bs right now to Europe to alleviate that, but instead we need to heat Senator Warren's house while she bitches about us as an industry. So anyway, I don't know about, about natural gas. Um, okay. All right. So ba basically what this question is saying, someone wrote in, you know, so people are so, so few people are educated about energy 
that there's a lot of misunderstanding. It allows the environmentalists to kind of win the argument. We do a lot of good for people. You know, should we care uh, now that we're kind of back on top? And the person used a naughtier word than this, so I'll just say screw them, or should we just say screw them? Um, that's an interesting point. Um, and I'll, I'll say this, there's a, there's a meme out on Twitter that says, name the three fastest animals on the planet. And it says the cheetah, the hummingbird, and Chuck Yates with a microphone running towards somebody that hates the oil and gas business. And I, <laughs> I don't get that. I think I'm pro oil and gas, but I will call things out on the podcast that I see that just aren't right. And so what happens with that is folks from the other side, the environmentalists will actually reach out to me. Hey, can we talk? You can't tell anyone we're talking. And this has been really fascinating is they do not hate us because, we're burn, uh, because of burning hydrocarbons. I mean, they all drive Suburbans. They all drive big cars. One lady's like, yeah, I couldn't deal with my six kids except for my SUV. That's actually not the problem. The problem is they don't fundamentally trust us as actors. They think we're bad actors. They think we pollute. They think we have knowledge about climate change that we hide, et cetera. They fundamentally just don't trust us. And to be honest, we kind of have done some shitty things. I mean, I hate to admit that, but we really have. And so they feel like they need to scare the public, say 10 years, the world's going to end. They feel morally justified in doing this because they think we're bad actors and we can't be trusted. And um, so I say all that because we have clearly lost the narrative. I mean, we just have. Uh, my three kids who have lived the greatest life on the planet, I want to be adopted and come back as one of my kids because it's a great life. If you ask any one of the three of them, you said, hey, what do you think we should do about oil? They'd all say, well, we should get rid of it, Dad. You're polluting the environment. <laughs> I always tell my kids, hey, I know how to get rid of oil. And they go, how's that, Dad? And I go, don't buy it. Don't use it. They'll go out of business. But we've clearly lost the narrative. And so I've actually spent a lot of time thinking of how do we get the narrative back? Because um, I think what we do in energy advocacy today is sit around in an echo chamber and say all this stuff, and we all cheer each other, and we walk out the door, and we haven't changed anyone's mind outside our own sphere. And you know why is that? One, I mean, we're kind of beaten down as an industry, and so we're pissed off. I get that. You know, we want to lash out at people that took our jobs, et cetera. So I get that, too. No offense to the engineers, but I feel like I'm piling on. Sorry, but we're a business run by a bunch of engineers, and engineers just aren't marketers. They really are. So it's, it's harder to tell a story. But I kind of lay this out because if we don't get the narrative back, I mean, we're going to be regulated out of business. I mean, we've seen from the Biden administration they have absolutely no shame in terms of buying oil from Venezuela and all these other places while they just regulate us out of business, berate us out of business, call us greedy and the like. And so I don't have a good answer for the narrative, but I have posted that I do think it matters. I don't think we can tell people to screw off. That's not going to help us. Um, I think historically we have told people to screw off and we're kind of paying for those sins. I mean, everybody remembers the bumper sticker, right? Freeze a Yankee. I mean, funny, but at the same time, didn't win us any friends. So I think it's, I think it's imperative that we win the, the narrative back. And looking at the psychological studies of how you change people's mind, there are three ways you can do it. One, solely ask questions, kind of the Socratic method. I don't know how effective that can really be. Um, two, you make people laugh. Uh, I always say that kids today are way more liberal than even normal young people are because of Jon Stewart. I mean, I, I watch The Daily Show all the time. The guy was hysterical. I didn't agree with him on politics, but I always laughed. Um, and then the third thing is you can scare them. And clearly that's what the environmentalists have done. 
with most of the population. I don't know that's for us coming back. So I don't have a good answer. I've killed a lot of brain cells trying to think about this because I would like to get outside the echo chamber and, uh, and be able to promote our industry. The one thing I will say would behoove us is, you know, when there are high energy prices, people suffer. I mean, people literally die. I mean, there's a single mom out, right, out there right now putting $10 in her, in her uh, car because that's all she's got is $10 and she's trying to get to her job. So I, I do think it's incumbent upon us with oil at 110 that we show some empathy. It's interesting, I said that out on Twitter and, and you know, I kind of get eviscerated about we should raise an army and go shoot down the environmentalists, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we need to go make friends with the environmentalists and that. There's just real people suffer. So I think uh, a little bit of empathy, a little bit of humility, uh, you know, if you're making $110 oil and things are good, it doesn't hurt you to fill up somebody's gas tank that's next to you. And I think it'll go a long way if we show that, because I think we forget as an industry that historically, when things are good for us, high energy prices almost always led to a recession and the rest of the world was hurting while we were doing well. And that's unfortunate because I think with Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, any of these tech entrepreneurs, they're celebrated, right? And that's because when they're doing well, usually the rest of the economy is doing well. So I'll get off my soapbox about that, but I really do think it's important we win this narrative back. If I figure out a way to do it, I'll put it out there and y'all can all make fun of me about it. But anyway, all right. <clears throat> Um, okay, here's interesting. Why do you have pronouns by your name? So on my social media, Chuck Yates, he, him, just in case you were curious, but yeah. Um, so little thoughts on that. Um, one, someone very close to me is transgender. And it's always a lot easier to show empathy when someone's close to you, you understand things. Uh, here's some facts I learned. And um, if you ever doubt divine intervention, this is just an example that God does exist because this person came out to me, call it nine months ago, 12 months ago, and literally a month before, I was thrown into a situation where I hung out with a transgender person for 48 hours. Um, I was out on tour with uh, country music singer Lindsay L. And when you're Tour, when you're out being a roadie on tour, you're with the entourage. You know, whoever else is there, you're just there and you hang out because uh, the band's always doing something, right? They got to go sound check. They got to do this. You just hang out with the entourage. And one of the members of the entourage was transgender. So we hung out for 48 hours. So I learned all these facts. 90% of people that are transgender that can't reveal themselves to uh, the folks they love try to commit suicide. And a lot of them are successful. The other thing I learned is one in 500 to maybe one in a thousand males are actually XXY. So I mean, literally have the chromosomes for both a female and a male. Um, the, a lot of the, you don't normally test for that. And a lot of times you only find out later in life is when you have infertility problems, because that can be a side effect of uh, being XXY. Uh, and so when that person uh, revealed themselves to me, I was actually in a really good spot of kind of understanding and, and uh, being able to be empathetic. And, and it was a great thing because the, the person's really close to me. So that was, that was a good thing. But the reason I put pronouns on is because one, I wanted to show support for, for my loved one, but also, you know, I've got a little bit of a celebrity status, at least in my own mind, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and I got into this argument with a friend of mine. They're like, oh, yeah, but this, this, this. I'm like, come on, man. Us old white guys have had it pretty freaking good, dude. And if we have to put pronouns by our name, who cares? I mean, does it really cost you anything? And, and they went on a kind of a political rant, but this, 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 this. And my answer was, 
really? You're telling me the world's a less better place because we have more boobs out there? <laughs> kind of won the argument on that. So uh, I put them there to show support for a loved one as well as if a kid sees that and decides to go get a beer with a friend on Friday night instead of doing something stupid, it's worth it and it doesn't hurt anything. Um, next question. What do you expect larger private equity players to, do you expect larger private equity players to move back into EMP and to midstream? Um, short answer there is we had two problems as an industry over, let's call it, you know, the last decade. We had two problems. We had the green problem, the environmental problem. You know, the environmentalists had, had kind of won the argument. I think that all roots back to um, we should have told people it was in frac fluid. At least in my lifetime, that feels like the big wedge the environmentalists got is we said it was secret sauce and we wouldn't tell people it was in it because it was proprietary and all that. It's water. I mean, sand, you know. Um, we should have told that. But anyway, so we clearly had lost the argument. So we had the green problem. I think the green problem is a minor annoyance to all of us in this room if we didn't have the red problem. We just lost a ton of money. I mean, we need to face up to it. We raised tons of public equity. We raised tons of private equity. And if you look at the returns over that decade, we squandered a ton of it. And so it became really easy as a chief investment officer dealing with a board to just say, we're not going to do oil and gas anymore. They blamed it on the green problem, but it was the red problem. So what I have said, kind of pre the war in Russia, I have said the only way we get meaningful capital back into this industry is if a CIO feels like if they don't have exposure to energy, they will become a former CIO, meaning you have to be meaningful enough of a portfolio so that the portfolio's returns don't beat an index of some sort because you don't have exposure to, uh, to energy. And when you're you know, two and 3% of the S&P 500, it's easy. If you want energy exposure, you go by Exxon, Chevron, whoever, maybe Dabble and Pioneer, Diamondback, or you just leave it alone. And so I don't think, so I don't think we see meaningful money come back until there's that tension. Um, so I actually said it's two years of underperforming an index before money would come back to energy. I do think the war, Europe's dependent on Russian energy, has at least changed somewhat the narrative. It'd be interesting, the private equity guys in here, how many more inbounds are you getting? Uh, educate me about energy. I don't know how many checks are being cut yet. So I think it's. Yeah. Uh, I don't think my parking is getting validated today. Um, no, actually, actually, you know what? Um, you you know what the. I, I will give the engineers credit because early on in the shale revolution, the really good engineers that I uh, knew said, this stuff won't work, you know? And almost in this kind of selection bias, it was the optimist who said, man, if we triple the sand, we double the water in the frack, lo and behold, this will work. And it did work, uh, at least early on. And so that allowed the people that were optimistic, not thoughtful to get the most amount of money, right? Because they had been successful. And the engineers actually did a really good job kind of post that um, in terms of it became the age of the engineer. You'd tweak things, you'd measure. They did a really good job. The problem was you had kind of death by water torture in terms of, well, we paid $300 million for acreage, it's probably not worth that. But let's go ahead and drill and complete the wells because we'll at least make a return there. And so you'd go drill the wells and you'd go, well, 
it's probably not worth drilling and completing, but we have all these ducts, we might as well complete them. And so once you start that treadmill, it's impossible to get off. But the engineers did much better. I'm gonna think of three nice things to say about engineers before the end of this. Um, okay, all right, these are my listeners. Um, tell a dirty joke that's actually clean. All right. Give it to me. Give it to me. Oh, I'm so wet. I don't care how much she gripes. I'm not giving her the umbrella. Oh, come on. All right. Never mind. Um, all right. This is Juan's because this is not my assistant's handwriting. Tell me what's the best and worst deals you got done while in energy. What are the lessons? Um, Clearly, the best deal I did was Silver Hill. Um, the, uh, anyone that's talked to me for more than 30 seconds has heard that I did the uh, Silver Hill deal. So, um, you know what was interesting? So, some interesting things about Silver Hill is, one, when the management team, and I don't know how many of y'all know Kyle Miller, but Kyle put together a great team. They came in to, um, they came in to meet with us. And my business partner, Mike Hines, is about seven years older than, than I was. And uh, Mike wasn't there one day. So I'm sitting in the meeting, and all the Silver Hill management team were young 30s. It was the first time in my life I was the oldest guy in the meeting. So I became the old guy on that day, uh, which I'd never been before. So that was interesting. The other neat thing about the Silver Hill deal is we originally got into the Delaware Basin because we bought the shallow rights from Clayton Williams. We were going to co-mingle the canyon sands like a Wolfberry well, and we drilled the seven finest water wells out in West Texas. I mean, we were producing thousands of barrels of water, maybe skimming some oil off the top. And so we were seriously kind of faced with, okay, we're going to lose 25 or 30 million bucks here. What are we going to do? Clayton Williams needed money. We saw what was going on with the Wolf Camp. And, um, and um, anyway, we, they came to us and said, hey, if you can close in two weeks, we'll sell you the Wolf Camp at this price. It made sense. We bought it. Uh, we, we actually spent $100 million buying Wolf Camp acreage. And that was the largest acreage check Kane had ever cut. And uh, I remember going home and uh, looking at pictures around Pecos, Texas, realizing I just bet my career on literally a dust bowl out in uh, West Texas. But an interesting lesson about that, because we had bought Silver Hill, one, the acreage, it was from Clayton Williams. It was checkerboarded with um, Anadarko, I believe. And we were drilling uh, horizontals. We were doing best practices on the frack and we were drilling really good wells. When oil plunged, we were able to buy from Concho the offsetting acreage that literally had uh, the ability to drill long laterals. And um, so, uh, I remember signing the purchase agreement, uh, the PSA on that, and it was interesting because our model showed if we just got the same economics as drilling our, ver our horizontals on their acreage, we'd make a 20% rate of return. If we saw an uplift by drilling long laterals, kind of got 2x the reserves for 1.3 the price, we'd make 30%. And if we found another zone, we'd make a 50% rate of return. And Concho had left us three well bores, and we said, don't complete them. We want to do it. So two of them were long laterals in the wolf camp. So we literally got out there within the first 30 days, fracked both of them, and 90 days later, they were on the type curve for 2X, and everybody felt really good about that. Third, uh, the third well bore they left us was in the Avalon. Whole new zone, hadn't looked at it. We fracked that within the first 45 days. 90 days later, it had made more oil than any other well in the field. Now it was shallower, so ultimately it wouldn't have had the EUR, but uh, we did that. And so we kind of knew within 90 to 120 days that we had hit a home run with that. 
The funny thing about all that is it was literally everything in the model was predicated on $40 oil. And the day we signed the purchase sale agreement, $28 a barrel. And so I, I say that the lesson learned is you can do all of the micro alpha type stuff you want to do and study the wells and all that. Beta plays such a whole huge role in this business that you've got to have a forecast for what you think is going to happen and lean into that and believe yourself. Um, let me do this. Uh, so the worst deal I did, we'd be here all day. <laughs> I mean, uh, things, things I learned uh, about worst deals is when people reveal themselves to you, actually believe them, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, the other thing I talked about earlier is don't use a contango price deck for drilling programs because if you want to go bet on higher prices, just go out to the NYMEX and, and do it that way. You don't need to, to, uh, to drill wells. The, um, the other thing I've learned in terms of uh, worse deals that I've, uh, that I've done is if you can sell and make a profit, just go ahead and take it. We lost so much money holding out. You know, we go, oh, we're going to get 1.8 times our money. We need a 2x, and we didn't do it, and we would wind up being wiped out on various things. There's nothing, you know, we say this about River Oaks in Houston. I'm sure the same is true of Highland Park. It's full of people that sold too early, so feel free not to do that. I was told uh, I was getting the hook soon, so I'll go. I'll go two more questions, and then I'm happy to 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 take any. Um, <laughs> either in your business or from your podcast, who considers you their mortal enemy? If I told this to a friend the other day, if I die mysteriously, it's one of three things. Please go investigate my ex-wife. Uh, please go investigate Chevron. Um, or three, it's because I had to get boosted because I went to uh, France. They required the, uh, the boost. Um, I don't know if anyone saw my podcast I did about Chevron, but I'll just go ahead and call them out again. Uh, there's a landowner out in West Texas, just north of Monahans, Ashley Watt. She has a ranch and to kind of cut to the chase, it's a lease that Chevron's literally had since 1924 through Gulf, and they've been operating the whole time, and it's just an old, dirty oil field, right? And Ashley has had problems with blowouts on P&A wells, et cetera. She thinks that Chevron has polluted the, the aquifer out there, killed her mother because of cancer. So I've done a podcast or or I did a couple of podcasts uh, about that. And to me, it was just an old oil field, right? I mean, that's kind of, if, if any malfeasance was done, it was done 30 years ago by someone that not only doesn't work for Chevron today, is probably dead, right? Um, and we all do things better today than we did 30 years ago, right? And so I didn't think much of it, but she wanted me to come out. I came out there with a camera crew. And as we were driving around, we were on one well site that she said, okay, this well had a blowout, produced water. My foreman couldn't drive his truck across here because it was so wet and muddy. And you could look down and 300 yards down, there was obviously a pooling and all these dead mesquite trees. There was another branch of the road off this way, same thing, uh, pooling. And she got a hold of the well file somehow and in there, Chevron said they couldn't cross uh, trucks through this area because it was so muddy for two days. And I was like, okay, whatever. And this was kind of the offhand remark she, she made. She said, yeah, and when I asked them how much water was spilled, they said 31.69 barrels. And I was just like, 31.69 barrels? I mean, that would evaporate before it hits the ground in West Texas. I mean, how are they not driving trucks across there? In 69, really? I mean, you're going to troll a landowner with a 69 joke. Uh, and so anyway, uh, we wound up hiring a fresh water truck to come out and dump 31.69 barrels of water on the ground just to film and see what happens. And anyway, we were, we were kind of mocking of it. 
But I, uh, I point that out because it was funny. She and I were talking later, and she said, that's your breaking point. They've polluted my aquifer and all this, and 31.69 is your breaking point. But my, my whole reason for making that the thing about the podcast is that's just wrong. I mean, Chevron knows that it was more than 31.69 barrels, and the fact they would report that to a landowner it is just uh, is just plain wrong. And so anyway, we we mocked Chevron throughout the podcast. It's actually pretty funny because um, we ran the experiment. It took about 30 minutes to spill the uh, 31.69 barrels, and it took about 15 seconds for it all to evaporate. But if I'm found missing, I'm not suicidal. Please investigate Chevron too. Um, all right, so... Last, uh, okay, so last question, then I'm happy to take uh, any of yours or you can uh, go get coffee and leave. Uh, but this just goes to uh, say who listens to my podcast. So there are a series of questions. One, who killed Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> Thanks. Number two, would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. And the guy says, I would rather fight a horse-sized duck because my, my shins are very sensitive and I think the 100 duck-sized horses would hurt me. Yes, those are my listeners. So if you got any questions, I'm happy to take them. If you're bored to tears, feel free to leave. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because that's actually one of the questions. What's the biggest opportunity you see out there? What's the, um, what's the biggest threat you see out there? Um, here's what I see as a, as a big opportunity is Bitcoin mining, and I'll kind of step back. Bitcoin's just a digital currency. Um, basically, it is a setup whereby you have a decentralized network, creates Bitcoin. There is a ledger that shows the ownership of that Bitcoin all the way back to time zero. So imagine if you got a dollar bill, Juan, I gave you a dollar. And along with that dollar, it literally says Juan owns it now, Chuck owned it all the way back in time. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting if you study it, it may be a perfect currency. But the way you keep that ledger, because that ledger requires a lot of computing power, i.e. a lot of energy to keep that ledger, is by miners. And so it's called a proof of work. You basically have a lot of computers that compete to crack a code. And when they crack a code, a block is entered into that chain, everybody confirms the block, and that person gets a Bitcoin for doing this. And um, that's sort of the self-sustaining thing. So Bitcoin mining takes a lot of power, but what's interesting about it is it can happen anywhere. And so what I've been telling oil and gas folks, because I had a Bitcoin mining guy on the podcast about a year and a half ago, and I would call all my private equity brethren and I'd say, man, Bitcoin mining is really fascinating. It's in effect a way to store energy because you can generate power, mine a Bitcoin, monetize it later. And people said, hey, what? Don't care. About six months later, people were like, OK, we're interested in listening to that, but only if we kind of have some flared gas that we're not using. Maybe we'll mine Bitcoin with that. Um, it's gotten to the point now where people are talking about, hey, I should go mine Bitcoin and I'm going to partner with a Bitcoin miner. I am here to tell every oil and gas person, take a half intelligent engineer um, and say, here's two weeks, go figure out how to mine Bitcoin, because it's literally as simple as plugging computers into, a, into the wall socket. Yeah, you need to keep them air conditioned. Yeah, there's some computer maintenance to keep it going. But the way I look at it is, if you have 
a molecule of natural gas, you have a BTU. What do you do every day? You run it through a plant, right? And you decide whether to strip out the liquids. Do we strip out the liquids, sell the ethane separately? You should be doing the same thing with Bitcoin mining because literally on site, on the well site, you know how to generate power, right? Every well site has power to it in some way, shape or form. You know how to get a generator there. You know how to create electricity out of it. You should look at it every day because if you look back over time, taking the, the MCF of gas and if it was selling for $3 an M, if you actually went and mined the Bitcoin at various Bitcoin prices, you're selling that same MCF for $40, $45 an M if you look back over the, the last couple of years. So what I tell everybody is, is you need to go study this and don't just take, well, we can't do it because of this. Really go throw some time at it. It's not that hard to figure out. And you can figure what will happen is run it just like running through the plant, potentially generate power, potentially mine your Bitcoin. The nice thing is, is your Bitcoin every night, you can turn it to cash. No more selling MCF of gas down the line and maybe getting paid by the midstream company 30, 60 days later. And so it's just a huge opportunity right now if you have natural gas and every company needs a strategy about it. Your strategy may be, no, we're not going to do this. But if you're not seriously devoting some resources to thinking through it, um, uh, you really should. We're actually at Digital Wildcatters doing a conference. We're doing a conference starting tomorrow down in Houston that we're calling Empower. And it's the convergence of energy and Bitcoin mining. Because at the end of the day, all of the Bitcoin miners um, are ultimately going to be oil and gas companies. You literally don't have to partner with somebody to figure this out. There's no reason to give those profits away. And what's been really interesting is, you know, China outlawed Bitcoin mining because it was taking too much power. So you've seen a shift of kind of the computing power on the network and it's figuring out where it wants to go. And if you look at where it should go and you run through the attributes of what you need, you need cheap power, you need a good regulatory environment, et cetera, it's West Texas. I mean, there are tons of renewables. What are there, 35 gigawatts of power out there and only 12 gigawatts of transmission to the rest of us in Texas? So a lot of cheap power and the like. And the weirdest thing through Twitter, I get direct messages all the time from Prague, Czechoslovakia, various places in China. Hey, we're considering moving our Bitcoin mining operation somewhere. Please tell us about West Texas. And so it's happening and it's going to be a big opportunity. And if you haven't, as an oil and gas person, you really do need to study it and get a strategy. So. Uh, with all the energy that uh, this mining is consuming and the pushback against it, I'm seeing that it's one of the driving forces for quantum computers, which have a whole different energy signature and start you know, taking over the mining of this point. Seen much uh, information, comments on quantum targeting? So the, the question is basically. To do all this money takes a lot of power. There's a lot of pushback there, obviously using more power. If you talk to the true devotees of Bitcoin mining, they actually say that Bitcoin mining enables power generation because if a solar facility out in West Texas doesn't have enough in the way of clients, if you can mine Bitcoin off that power, the solar panels can be built because you have an economic use for it. So they will talk about, you know, Bitcoin mining folks will say we're, you know, we're actually making energy more efficient. Um, I don't know how well that argument's going to hold up because at the end of the day, more power is more power. But um, so the question was, do you kind of see changes in computing and uh, what you're seeing there uh, to be more efficient on the power front? I think what Bitcoin, uh, coin folks, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think what Bitcoin folks will tell you is that the computing power and where they call them ASICs, those are the miners, where ASICs are, 
I don't want to say they've topped out because you always get better over time. But if you look at the history of Bitcoin mining, um, Bitcoin was started in 2009. Here's my, here's my Bitcoin story. 2011, my eldest child is Bitcoin mining on the home computer, unbeknownst to mother and me, right? The old, eldest child accumulates nine Bitcoins, which, I mean, they're $50,000 a pop these days, right? So nine Bitcoins. The eldest child buys a fake pair of Yeezy tennis shoes out of China with those nine Bitcoins. Yeezys are Kanye West brand with Adidas. Gets the Yeezy tennis shoes in, puts them on, steps in a puddle, they disintegrate. That today would be worth almost half a million dollars. Uh, so that is our Bitcoin mining story in the Yates family. Um, but if you look at the history, I mean, you literally used to be able to, to uh, Bitcoin mine on a home computer. The computing and the ASICs have gotten better and better and better. They probably doubled in capacity each year, but they've flattened off. So I think, I think what Bitcoin miner folks tell you is for the most part, um, the ASIC miners needed to perform the computations to solve the, the riddle and get the block added to the, uh, to the ledger have peaked. As soon as you say that, of course, something will happen that'll be revolutionary. But that's at least kind of what I've, uh, what I've heard from that. Where is the custody transfer? Where is the loyalty to the mineral owner? $3 gas or the $40? Yeah, so the question is basically, if you're going to mine Bitcoin, what do you, how do you treat the, uh, the royalty holders? Um, and my answer to that is, however you decide to do that, you're going to get sued. Um, we don't have really legislation on that front, we actually don't have a lot of court cases uh, on that front. I'll tell you what I'm seeing, how people have uh, decided to, uh, to deal with it, is I've seen people create independent subsidiaries uh, where they transfer price literally at whatever the spot is. If we're selling to this pipeline and we get WTI, we just transfer at WTI, we go mine and, and we keep the uplift. I've seen that. Um, I have seen some folks say, we were having to flare that gas anyway, so we're just gonna take the gas for free, mine it and keep all the uplift. I'm not sure that's gonna play over uh, really well, but that's a struggle right now, thinking through exactly how you treat the landowners. I've, I ultimately think consensus is going to be something around transfer pricing because I do think the EMP operator has a fair uh, response to the landowner is, hey, take your gas in kind and go mine it yourself. You know, I'm paying for computers here to mine. That's real CapEx and it's a separate business. You know, you, when I sell to the sell to the electric company and they sell electricity for more than they paid for it, you don't get that uplift in it. So, but you, you've hit the nail on the head, that's gonna be a mess, which I tell you because every time you're negotiating a lease going forward, you need to address it in your lease. Every time you're uh, negotiating a marketing uh, contract, you need, to, you need to address it in your marketing agreement. I mean, you have, percent of proceeds and things like that and your gas gathering and processing, you need to address Bitcoin mining in it. And uh, I've actually heard of an EMP company going out, they've got a really competitive area and they're uh, sending their gas out and they're demanding as part of their gathering and processing contract that the midstream company provide Bitcoin mining and they're working on a, a pop contract for it. So it's it's something you need to be mindful of and address. Uh, more of a curiosity, personal question. So, uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, so uh, you're a knowledgeable guy in oil and gas. Uh, you have a podcast. It sounds like you're an active dad. You have a really interesting style. <laughs> So the question is, where am I going with everything? That kind of sounded like, Chuck, have you just given up? 
Um, no, it's interesting. I think I've figured out a few things about myself because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I've kind of owned getting fired, but at the same time, it sucks. I mean, you know, you're sitting on a Zoom call and, and uh, you know, you hear, well, performance has been poor, you're fired, or we need to go a different direction. I'm like, I didn't make oil go to minus 37. I really didn't. That wasn't me. Um, but um, anyway, so I figured out a couple of things. One, my mom had a hip replacement surgery, call it 10 years ago. And I went and saw her the next day. And I said, hey, mom, how you doing? She goes, well, of course I hurt because my body was splayed open. But this long-term arthritis I had, this pain I was in every day because of my hip is gone. And I totally didn't appreciate how much pain I was in every day because of that until now. Now that's gone. I'll go rehab and, and I'll be better. I think the same was true with stress. I literally had no idea how much stress I was under every day until the next morning I woke up and I went, I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have any responsibilities. And I'll go ahead and just fess up to this. Um, the next morning, woke up, got in the shower, and on my iPhone, I actually videoed, videoed myself recreating the opening scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember when he did the, the shampoo off? And I don't know, I hadn't felt that good in 25 years. And so one, that was really good. I figured out I like the toys, I don't need the toys, you know? So mental health, uh, feeling good every day, way more important. The biggest regret I had is I felt so good doing something stupid as recreating Ferris Bueller that, you know, two years earlier, one of my children's victories of something I, I didn't feel that good about and just was racked with kind of horrible regrets about that. And so, so yeah, no, I think, and the other thing I figured out about myself is I am fundamentally the laziest person I've ever met. So sitting on the couch watching Oprah eating bonbons is actually a really good day for me. So I told my parents the other day, you know, that I would move back in with them before I get another job. So, uh, so the short answer is I don't know where I'm going with, uh, with any of this. It's fun doing the podcast. I get to say whatever I want to say. Uh, I get to tell some stories. I've actually figured out I really like telling stories. Go in, dig something out, maybe look at something a different way than, than uh, kind of public, public uh, perception. I would really like to figure out how to get outside the echo chamber and make energy okay for the rest of the world, but I haven't figured that out yet. So with that, why don't y'all all go to work? Because it sucks and I don't have to do that. <laughs> Thanks for having me.